0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John as we continue our study of the fourth Gospel. Today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 5. If you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you can see the page printed for you in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, down through the end of the chapter. Just a reminder, as we've been in chapter 5 for a few weeks... And right here where we are in chapter 5, really from the middle of chapter 5 all the way to the end, as I mentioned to you previously, is the longest uninterrupted uh, explanation by Jesus Himself of who He is and what He came to do. We're in the middle of that and we're picking up more of what He says here as we come to verse 31. He's speaking to the religious authorities. And he says in verse 31, if, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, as we pray so often, we need the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can see and read and understand what you want us to see and understand from your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work in these very moments, helping us not only just to gain knowledge, but the knowledge that would lead us to greater faith, greater obedience, greater love for you. To do this, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you may be familiar with the name Lee Strobel. Some of you may have even read some of his books. Some of you may have even given some of his books uh, defending the Christian faith to people that you uh, have friends or people that are thinking about Christianity, but you may not know some of his story. Lee Struble was born in 1952 in Illinois. He went to college at the University of Missouri and got a degree in journalism from what was then one of the greatest journalism schools in the country. He then went on to Yale Law School and got a Master's of Studies in Law degree. Then he got hired into his dream job. He was hired as the legal affairs correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. Strobel, growing up as a young man and into his early adulthood, was a self-professed atheist, living a life that was wild with very little accountability. But his wife, Leslie, sometime fairly early in their marriage, was actually led to Christ by a friend in their neighborhood. She started attending Willow Creek Church in Chicago, and she invited her husband, Lee, to go with her, and he did. And it just happens that when they went, the sermon series that was being preached on was on the basics of the Christian faith. And Strobel decided that he was going to go every week and listen to every sermon so that he could prove that Christianity was not true. He was going to bring all of his journalism education and skills to bear on proving that Christianity was false. So he began to gather evidence. He read through the Bible, and as he did that, he realized very quickly that one of the key doctrines of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he figured if he could show that the resurrection wasn't true, then the rest of Christianity would fall by the wayside. So he started reading the Bible accounts of the resurrection. And as he continued to try to gather evidence to prove the falsity of Christianity, he kept running into a problem. The witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. How many there were, the quality of them, the nature of them. And he came to the conclusion that that many people as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus couldn't have been wrong. As a result of his investigation rather than disproving Christianity he became a Christian. Put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and was converted. He actually became one of the pastors at Willow Creek Church for a while. Went on to pastor a couple of other churches as well and teaches Christian apologetics and Christian thought at Houston Baptist University. He's written over 20 books many of them apologetics books on the Defense of the Christian faith. And he became a Christian because of the trustworthy and faithful witnesses in the Scriptures. Witnesses are important in the court of law in proving a case. Dr. Jim Boyce in his commentary on John uses a hypothetical illustration to try to help us to understand how important witnesses are. He says in his commentary, suppose that you're on a jury of a court case. A man has been accused of murder and you have to weigh the evidence and determine if he's guilty or not. The district attorney begins bringing out the witnesses, evidence that the man committed the crime. The first witness shows that the accused had the opportunity to commit the crime. A second witness is brought out. Who shows that the accused had a motive to commit the crime. A third witness is brought out. Who proves that the accused had access to the murder weapon. And finally a fourth witness is brought out. And this person saw the accused do it. An eyewitness to the account and he is identified in the courtroom. It's pretty pretty convincing evidence powerful testimony of witnesses it would be fairly easy to render a guil- a guilty verdict jesus is doing something like that here in these verses in john verses 31 through 47 as we've seen in previous week he, he's made significant claims in john chapter 5 including the claim that he is god and the religious authorities were livid they said jesus was blaspheming, and they wanted to kill him. It was a charge, blasphemy, it was a charge carrying the death penalty. So what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't back off. He didn't just slip away. He didn't stay silent. He defended himself. But he defended himself not because he wanted to be exonerated. He knew that he wouldn't be. He knew that he was going to be put to death. Jesus brought out faithful and trustworthy witnesses to prove his point. That he is who he said he is. And to call people to faith in him. So he lined up witnesses, four of them. In fact, he needed to have multiple witnesses and he needed to have witnesses that were outside of himself. That's what he says in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He he needed witnesses outside of himself so that his truthfulness could be corroborated. So what were his witnesses? Well, I didn't get the outline into the bulletin on time this week, but the the outline is as easy as enough. We're going to look at these four witnesses that we see in these verses. The first is John the Baptist. The second are the miracles that Jesus did. Third is God himself. And fourth, Scripture. So let's look at each of those. First of all, John the Baptist. We see that in verses 33 through 35. He's speaking to the religious authorities and he says to them, You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus says, I don't have to rely on the testimony of man, but for your sake, he points to John the Baptist as a witness of who Jesus is. And he reminds them, you know, it was you that actually went to John to ask who he was and ask what was going on about this Christ. And we read that back in chapter one, verses 19 and following. They asked John who he was and he told him, I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The Messiah is coming, he said, whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. And then the very next day, out in public, Jesus was walking by, and John at the, at the top of his lungs shouts for everyone to hear, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He went on to say that this Jesus, the Messiah, the, the Lamb of God, would have the Spirit of God descend upon him that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and that he indeed is the Son of God. Jesus says that John the Baptist was a burning and shining light because he bore testimony. He was a witness about the ultimate light, Jesus the Messiah. This is the first witness that Jesus brings to bear in front of the religious authorities. You know, God's people are called to continue being a burning light, a shining light for Jesus. We, we, are, we are called as God's people to, to point people to Jesus, to bear witness about Him. You probably remember that well-known quote by Hugh Latimer, the 16th century pastor and reformer. In 1555, he was burned at the stake by Queen Mary I because of his beliefs. And as he was bound to the stake and as the fire was lit and as the flames began to come up, he turned to his friend who was also being burned at the stake next to him, Nicholas Ridley. And Latimer said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Those of you that know your church history know that indeed the Lord did use their shining, fiery light of witness as a powerful means of bringing the Reformation to England. You also know the name Jim Elliot, a well-known missionary, a martyr for his Christian witness. He wrote in his journal, Lord. Am I ignitable? Saturate me with the oil of the Holy Spirit that I might be aflame. Now, Lord willing, none of us will have to actually be put on fire to be a burning light for Jesus. But how are you doing in shining the light for Jesus, witnessing for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus? We need to be doing that in our actions and our deeds. People ought to be able to see how we live our lives, that we are pointing to Christ, that we are witnessing our life as a witness in our actions to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to do that with our words as well, that we would actually be telling people about the grace and truth of Jesus, that we would be telling them about the bad news of sin and the good news of the grace of the gospel. So how are you doing? How are you doing in being a light for Jesus in word and in deed in a world that desperately needs to hear it? This is the first witness. The second witness, Jesus says, is even greater than that one. We see it in verse 36. But the testimony that I have, Jesus speaking again, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given Me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. Jesus says, I have an even greater witness, an even greater testimony than John the Baptist's testimony. The works that My Father has given Me to do. The works that I'm doing right now in your midst. Jesus was referring to His miracles, His signs and wonders that He had been doing Up until that point, that he will continue to do in their midst. Many scholars refer to the first half of John's gospel as the book of miracles or the book book of signs. In the first 11 chapters of John, there are seven miracles recorded. We've seen some of them already. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. In chapter 4, we heard about the healing of the royal official's son. In chapter 5, we we saw the healing of the lame man at the pool. Next week, we'll be looking at the beginning of chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. Later in chapter 6, we'll see Jesus walking on water. Chapter 9, we'll read about the healing of the man who was born blind. And then in chapter 11, we read about Lazarus being raised from the dead. These are public seen, experienced, known miracles of Jesus. The purpose of miracles wasn't just to help those who were in need or those who were hurting. The purpose of miracles primarily was to prove Jesus was who he said he was, to show, to testify, to witness that he is indeed God. He spoke to the religious authorities. He said, do you want proof Do you need a testimony? Then look at the the witness of the miracles that I've done. Who could do those things? Only the one sent by God to do them. Only the one who is God himself. Some of you may know the name Simon Greenleaf. He lived in the late 18th and early 19th century here in the United States. He became a well-known, a very well-known lawyer. He was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. He wrote a three-volume treatise on the law of evidence, and it serves to this day as a foundation for legal practices here in the United States. Like Lee Strobel, Simon Greenleaf, a self-professed atheist, set out to disprove Christianity. He would use the rules in his treatise to evaluate the evidence in the four Gospels. And also like Strobel, He ended up not disproving Christianity, but accepting the claims of Jesus. He became a Christian. And he said that one of the main reasons why he was persuaded by the evidence was the way that the disciples boldly proclaimed about one of the miracles in particular, the greatest miracle. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Greenleaf said as he reflects on how the disciples boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Speaking of the disciples, he said their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. The laws of every country were against the teachings of the disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecution, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith, they did Propagate zealously. And all these miseries they endured undismayed, even rejoicing. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience and unblinching courage. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truth that they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact, as certainly as they knew any other fact. It was the witness of the greatest miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that persuaded him that Christianity was true. But not just the resurrection. All of Jesus' miracles gives us a clear and compelling evidence, a, a testimony, a witness that Jesus is God. He is the Christ. This is the second witness that he brings to bear. Now, as if that wasn't enough, the the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles that Jesus is doing, as if that wasn't enough, he brings out the greatest witness of all. He alluded to this witness in verse 32 where he says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He gets down to verse 37 and 38 to actually tell us who he's talking about. The Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus told them that God himself who sent Jesus had borne witness about him. We we read about that same truth in other places in the Bible. We think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God had told his people from the very beginning who he is, what the gospel is, the promise of the Messiah. And in the days of the first century, as Jesus was walking the earth, God spoke to the people through Jesus. He testified, he witnessed to who Jesus was as the one he had sent. In fact, the people in the first century had even heard the father speak audibly about the son at Jesus's baptism. Many heard the father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration on the mountain in Matthew 17, the father spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus turned and brought an accusation against the religious authorities at the end of verse 37 and 38 told him, you haven't heard God's voice. You haven't seen His form. You don't have His Word in you. And the reason is is because you don't believe me. And who I say that I am. I am the Son of God. I am God in the flesh. I am God Himself. And in me, you hear the voice of God. In me, the form of God can be seen. In me, the Word of God is made real. Because I am God, He says. This was the third witness that Jesus brought. God Himself bearing witness that Jesus is who He said He was. An even greater witness than John the Baptist. An even greater witness than the miracles that Jesus did. And nothing more was needed. Jesus could rest His case. He had proven His point. He didn't need any more witnesses to come forward. But He brought a fourth. He brought a fourth and final witness to the religious authorities. And it was the witness of the Scriptures themselves. We read about that in verses 39 and following. He tells them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. And that day when he was speaking about the scriptures that they were searching he was speaking about the old testament today we have the entirety of the scriptures the old testament and the new testament and notice what the problem was of these religious authorities the problem wasn't that they weren't reading the old testament they weren't ignorant of what it said had that been the case they wouldn't have been able to be blamed and jesus said no you search the scriptures that's what he says in verse 39 in fact These religious authorities were experts in the Scriptures. They were trained in the Old Testament. They studied it thoroughly. They even memorized parts of it. So what was their problem? Well, Notice what he says in verse 39. They read the Scriptures only to get something from it. Rather than in order to know God, to know the story, to know the message. He tells them, you think that in them, the Scriptures, you have eternal life. He's addressing the mindset of these religious authorities. They thought, if I had a physical copy of the Scriptures, and if I read the Scriptures, and maybe even memorize some of the Scriptures, then that will earn me eternal life. It didn't matter if they really understood what it said. It didn't matter if they got the true message of the scriptures. The scripture was simply a means to the end of getting something from God rather than getting God himself. I have a pastor friend who's a campus minister and he tells the story about one time when he had a conversation with a young man who was in the campus ministry. He was a freshman in college and he came to one of the first Bible studies in the new semester And after the Bible study, he went up to the campus pastor to introduce himself, and he very proudly informed the campus minister that he was the Bible memorization champion for his entire state. The campus pastor was very impressed, and so he he talked with him a little bit more, and the, the young man told him that he had memorized the entire book of Hebrews. So the campus pastor asked him, well, what? Part of Hebrews, what part of the message of Hebrews is that part that has impacted your life the most? And the young man stumbled. He didn't have anything to say, he was stumped. Because he had memorized all the words, but he hadn't paid attention to the message of Hebrews. It's not surprising that, it wasn't surprising to the campus minister that eventually the young man walked away from the faith later in college. This was the problem of these religious authorities. They, they read the Old Testament. They memorized the Old Testament, but they didn't learn the message of the Old Testament. Jesus said, because this is the way that you approach Scripture, you don't see that the Scriptures are actually pointing to me. The Scriptures are about me, Jesus says. These religious authorities, Jesus goes on in verses 41 through following, in the following verses, these these religious authorities had the wrong motivation. Their motivation was getting and giving glory to one another and from one another. They were more interested in the credentials of man, how studied one would be, how accomplished, how important one would be. That's why Jesus says that if somebody else comes along that has credentials, you'll put your faith in that one even though you won't put your faith in me, the actual Messiah. They were motivated by getting glory from others, by being known as the religious authorities, given glory because of their position and prestige, having position and power and prestige and getting glory from others. It was more important to them than seeking the glory of God, Jesus says. And did you notice that Jesus says that as a result It is these religious authorities that actually are going to have accusations brought against them. They are the ones who are in danger of being condemned. And Jesus says in verse 45, He was not the one that was going to condemn them before the Father, but there was one who would. Who? It would be Moses. And when He told them that, that would have been a stinging blow to these authorities. They held Moses in the highest of esteem. He was an authority figure for them. He was the father of the faith. It was his words that they spent so much time and energy reading and memorizing. And Jesus says, Moses will condemn you because you didn't read Moses and what he was saying because Moses was talking about me. Moses was talking about Jesus. Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that leads us to an incredibly important principle for how we read the Scriptures. The entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. We remember what we read in Luke chapter 24 after the resurrection as these two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus came up alongside of them and began walking with them, but they didn't know that it was Jesus. And they were talking about all the events that had happened. They were talking about the Messiah who they thought was the Messiah had come. And yet the conversation was full of grief because they had so hoped that this one Jesus was the Messiah. Yet he died and they now couldn't even find his body. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of scripture is about Jesus. How do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Pastor and commentator Rick Phillips, in his commentary on this passage, points out three ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament. He says one of the ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament is in the prophecies. Isaiah 7, we're told that he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 61, that he would be anointed to bring good news and he would have the Spirit of the Lord on him. Isaiah 50, that he would be beaten and spit upon. Zechariah 12 and Psalm 22, that nails would pierce his hands and feet. Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, that he would thirst and be given gall to drink. Psalm 34, that no bone in his body would be broken by the authorities, even though that was a common practice. Isaiah 53, that he'd be buried in a rich man's grave. The prophecies all throughout the Old Testament show us Jesus. Philip says it's not just the prophecies. We also see Jesus in the Old Testament in all of the types of. People, events, institutions that were types of Jesus, that that pointed past themselves to the Messiah. Moses was a type of Christ as he delivered his people out of bondage and into freedom. David was a type of Christ as the king of Israel. He pointed to the even greater and ultimate king who would sit on the throne forever. Solomon was a type of Christ with his wisdom and his reign of peace and glory. The conquest of Jericho typified Jesus' conquest of Satan and his evil kingdom. The tabernacle was a type of Christ in many ways, from everything from the furniture to just the fact that God was dwelling in the midst of his people, pointing to Christ coming in the flesh in the midst of his people. Prophecies, types... Phillips also says we see Christ in the Old Testament in the ceremonies and we think particularly of the sacrificial system that was established, all of the rituals and the cleansings, the pure, unblemished animals that were sacrificed, all the blood that was spilled, the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 when the scapegoats had the sins of Israel put on it and then driven out into the wilderness. All of these things point forward to Jesus who would come to be the ultimate and perfect sacrifices for the sins of his people. The entire Bible, the whole of Scripture is one unified, congruent story. It is God's pursuit of his people, his desire for fellowship and reconciliation. He accomplished that through the Messiah promised in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. Realized in the arrival of Jesus and his person and work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and explained and applied to us through the letters and epistles. It's all about Jesus. So let me finish by just mentioning some ways that God's people should be using the Scriptures. If this is how important the Scriptures are, if they're pointing us to Christ, the Word of God, then how should we be using them? Well, we should be using them for others on one hand to show others Jesus, to tell others about Jesus and the Lord as Lord and Savior. We have some powerful words in the Bible about the word of God. Romans 10 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God that does that. Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And how do we know the gospel? It's through the word of God. There is power in the word of God. Power through the work of the Holy Spirit. Power to bring faith and salvation and eternal life. And so we ought to be using the Word of God to tell others about Jesus, to witness about Jesus. And as we do, we have the privilege of watching the power of God at work and changing hearts through the Word and the work of the Spirit. We should be using the Word not just for others, but also for ourselves. Another well-known passage, 2nd Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Christian, do you need to be taught? Do you need to be reproved? Do you need to be corrected? Do you need to be trained in righteousness? then read and study and pray all of the scriptures christian do you want to be complete and equipped for every good work then read and study and pray all of the scriptures seeing jesus in it all seeing the gospel prophesied and typified and realized and explained and let me give just one final word to anybody that might be here today who haven't made a profession of faith in Christ, see yourselves not as a Christian, maybe skeptical or unsure about Christianity, the question for you today is, what are you going to do about Jesus? The witness, the testimonies, the evidence is in. The evidence is clear and compelling about our problem, sin. Sin. It's about the solution, the cross. About the only way to have eternal life. To come to Christ, to believe and to trust in Jesus. So the question remains, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, a wonderful gift you have given to us in your word. Would you please forgive us for the many ways that we take it for granted, that we neglect it? We know that in your word is life, because in your word is Jesus. We see him throughout the scriptures. I pray that you give each of us a renewed desire to read your word. Father, we pray that you would help us as we read your word to believe what it says, even as Jesus himself Brings these witnesses before our eyes today. Help us to believe the truth of them. Help us to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And that by believing in Him, we would have life. Thank You for Him. Thank You for Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.